I'm Tavis Smiley. Delighted to have you tuned into our program today. We are in hour two after a spirited hour one. In case you missed the first hour, um, please, at your at your leisure, check out the podcast of that conversation. Uh, we were talking in hour one about um, the disturbing and alarming data uh, that black folk are leading this nation in amputations, amputations that are preventable, amputations that are costing lives, amputations that the medical community and the insurance community are looking the other way on, amputations that Congress isn't taking seriously. Uh, John D. Cochran once famously said that racism is a part of everything in our society. Indeed, it is. Uh, but it's more acute in the uh, medical community, the medical profession. Uh, and uh, we uh, are grateful to Dr. Uh, uh, Faluso Fakariti for the work that he is doing in that regard. And we thank him for that conversation in our one. Uh, in this hour, I am delighted to have a conversation with Dr. George Yancey uh, until our lungs give out. Love that. Until our lungs give out. Conversations on race, justice, and the future. It's his latest text. He spoke with a stellar cast of intellectual heavyweights, including Noam Chomsky, Judith Butler, Robin D.G. Kelly, Peter McLaren, Cornell West, and others about what kind of commitment it would really take to dismantle the structures of inequality in America. Speaking of inequality in America. Uh, that first hour. Dr. Yancey uh, joins us now to unpack what he discovered in those conversations. Dr. Yancey, good to hear your voice again, sir. How are you today? Oh, same here. I'm doing well, thank you. I, I heard your your previous guest wish you happy birthday, so I want to say happy birthday to you. <laughs> you were kind. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> I see that. you're working still on your birthday. Well, <laughs> yeah, you got, you got work, the, work, the work's got to get done, man. Somebody's got to do it. That's right. Uh, and so, and so here, here I am. Here I am. Yeah. Um, so, I, I, first of all, I'm grateful for the conversation as always. Grateful for the, for the text, Until Our Lungs Give Out. I uh, love that title. I said, Conversations on Race, Justice, and the Future. Before I jump straight away into the text, uh, I, I love the concept. Tell me about the concept and how you came to it. Ah, well, what actually in that case, and let me let me thank the the nonprofit um, news organization Truthout mm-hmm. um, for its brilliant editing, uh, and also Takoon, uh, where at least one of the pieces uh, was uh, previously published. Mm-hmm. So really, it was their um, openness to have me engage in these courageous conversations with these in- intellectual heavyweights. Uh, and I, it was such a such an honor to do that. Uh, but in bringing the text together, of course, the 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 text itself, the sum of the text, is greater than individual parts of it. Uh, and I see it as um, primarily structured by conversation, mm-hmm. and by com- and also the the title "Until Our Lungs Give Out." That very I, that very concept suggests a kind of indefatigability, a kind of uh, steadfastness. Right? You see, if you can visualize it, it's the, the the image of going and going and going and fighting for justice mm-hmm. and fighting against injustice and racism, et cetera, et cetera, until one can't fight anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, what was important for me uh, was the conversation. And I the reason I stress that is because. I see conversation as the very heart of, of genuine education, which uh, I take uh, to come from the, the, the Latin word educare, which means to lead out. Uh, and it seems to me if we think about the, the root meaning of conversations, I love etymologies, conversation literally means to turn together, to turn together. And it's that turning uh, that may not be easy, but in this case, uh, indicative of this text and embedded within this text, it isn't, it isn't fueled by hatred or one-upmanship or zero-sum logics, right, mm-hmm. or egocentricity. 
the text is not about navel gazing, right? It's is it is it agonistic? Yes, uh, but not harm and absolute cancellation. So the text really exemplifies, uh, I think, a, a sort of Socratic spirit, mm. where the idea is to engage in a lankus or cross-examination, oh, yeah. and where we emphasize, uh, you know, paideia. I mean, it's, we're always referencing, every time I, I'm here, I talk about Cornell West. Sure, 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 uh, sure. Emphasizing paideia and uh, the, the German term Bildung, uh, both terms that stress cultivation. So, look, what I take the text to be engaging in and to be communicating is a radical rethinking of what dialogue looks like, which yeah. means talking across, right? So that's really, it's a pedagogical tool in that regard to reflect to people what genuine education looks like mm-hmm. when dialogue is stressed. You mentioned Socrates, and we are going to be Socratic in this hour. Socrates once said that mm-hmm. the unexamined life is not worth living. The unexamined life is not worth living, uh, and we're going to probe that in this hour. The book is called Until Our Lungs Give Out, Conversations on Race, Justice, and the Future. I want to uh, pose this question first when we come forward, and that is why this is our particular burden. Of all the folk on the globe, why is it our burden? To have to do this, to say what we see, to speak truth to power and to the powerless, on and on and on. I could go if I had the time. But why is this our burden until our lungs give out? It's a serious calling. Our guest, Dr. George Yancey, you're listening to Tavis Smiley. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward. Let's get back to more of this rich dialogue with Tavis Tavis Smiley. Smiley. Indeed, our guest at this hour is Dr. George Yancey. His latest text is called Until Our Lungs Give Out, Conversations on Race, Justice, and the Future. Delighted uh, to have him back on this program. So, Dr. Yancey, you heard me say a moment ago um, that I, I've wrestled with this question uh, any number of uh, times and days in my life. And you mentioned our mutual friend, Cornel West. He and I have had many, many dialogues uh, about the burden uh, that black people, uh, the burden that we bear uniquely, uh, not just in this country, but indeed uh, in the diaspora. Um, why is it, before I get again into the text, why is it you think, uh, how do you process um, that this is our particular burden to have to do this, that is to speak truth to power um, until our lungs give out? Yeah, um, I think that, one, it's a, it's a fascinating question, and I think that it it. It need not have been our burden, mm-hmm. put it that way. Counterfactually, um, you know, it, it, it's possible that we could have been in a world in which that wasn't our burden. But the fact of the matter is, we live in an anti-black world, mm. uh, locally in the U.S. and around the world. So I argue that for black people, we are the global monsters, right? Mm. We are perceived as the global monsters through a global white imaginary. Our history dictates that we must carry the burden. We must carry the burden. So it's an ethical responsibility. We have to recall that if there were others, black folk, uh, and I'm just going to talk about black folk at the moment, who didn't carry that burden, then we, our situation would be fundamentally different. So my sense is that, though I want to make a distinction, even though we carry the burden, what I, want, what I don't want to commit to is that we are the saviors in this case, of white people. Mm. Since we face white supremacy and anti-black, what, anti-black racism throughout the world, we can't be the saviors. And by that, I mean soteriologically. In other words, how is it that we can be saviors 
of people while at the same time we're called the N-word, while at the same time we're degradated, while at the same time we're humiliated, while at the same time we're dehumanized, and where we have our personhood deracinated because of anti-blackness. So I say to white people, look, I'm not going to be your savior figure. I don't want to carry that burden. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But at the same time, my argument is that there's a responsibility that I have to black people, and to the extent that I have a responsibility to black people, that means by extension I have a responsibility to educate those folk who are participating in and sustaining white anti-black racism, in this case, yeah. white anti-black racism. And so I think that it's, it's, it's quite a burden, um, but it's a burden uh, that we have to bear for existential reasons. I mean, we have to fight on behalf of ourselves because there will be no others who will fight for us mm. because they don't understand the sting and the profound angst and the profound existential ennui of what it means to be black. Mm-hmm. So there's, a, there's an ethical responsibility and there is an existential responsibility. We want to live. We want to breathe. So in order for you to keep breathing, in order for me to keep breathing, I fight on behalf of you and folks that look like you. Yeah. Right? That's our future. It, yeah. that, what you just said now, though, raises a, a profound question for me, one that I'm not sure that I've ever asked in all the years of my doing this. Let me ask it of you. and Why not, George Yancey? Um, I hear your point about not being wanting to be, wanting to bear the burden of being the savior for the good white folk. I understand that, and, mm-hmm. and you and I are simpatico in that regard. And yet it begs the question, it seems to me, if not us, then who is to save the good white folk from themselves? Mm. <laughs> let, me, let me make one more point. <laughs> That's good. Let me make one more point. I fear sometimes that the burden that we, care, that we carry is like Sisyphus. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those who know the myth, right? He rolled the, the boulder oh, up yeah. the, and it came right back down. That was his damnation, right? And I often fear that this, this load that we carry, this burden, is Sisyphean. And if that's true, then it seems to me that in the, at the end of the day, it's all pessimistic anyway. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a kind of nihilism uh, that is striking and that is deeply saddening. But the hope is that, and hope for black people, we face the abyss and we keep going. Right? Mm-hmm. But I think that what needs to happen is that we need to get those white folk, think about it as a triage system. <laughs> mm. We need to... We need to get those white folk who are capable of engaging precisely what the white interlocutors do in this text, who are capable of engaging in Parisia, who are capable of helping to carry the burden of our pain, but also helping to carry the burden of what is really white pain. And by that, I, I, I would argue, it's the pain that Baldwin spoke about. It's, the, it's their refusal to remove those masks that they fear they cannot live without, right? Mm-hmm. And my sense is that if we are to carry the burden of the death of a George Floyd, or the death of the recent killing of the, the three black souls, precious souls, in, um, in Jacksonville, mm-hmm. then white people have to carry the burden of the killers, Mm. in that case. Mm. So it seems to me that it's, if they can't not carry the burden, they also need a burden. What is that burden? It's the burden of anti-black racism that they themselves, in their mundane states, I'm talking about now non-spectacular forms of violence, 
I'm talking about forms of violence that we experience when we go to predominantly monochromatic spaces and we're the only blacks in that space mm-hmm. and how that's an alienating experience. I'm talking about even those white people who engage in creating critical theory uh, that challenges uh, let's say, uh, proto-forms proto of uh, proto-fascism uh, in the United States. But even those critical individuals don't often give the kind of attention I think that's necessary to deal with yeah. anti-blackness through their whiteness. Well, this is getting good. This is getting good, and I ain't even got yeah. into the text yet, not straight away. Right. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm working my way there. Glad we got the hour. Uh, I keep following you as I always do, so let me follow you again. Um, yeah. I hear your point that, that, that the good white folk need to bear the burden of these white killers, and yet... Uh, as you know, that ain't how it works. I have never met, you know, you mentioned today's my birthday, and, and it is, and in all the years of my living, I ain't met one white person yet um, who has ever felt, to my mind at least, the burden of the misbehavior of other white folk. Mm. But But in reverse, you know exactly where I'm going here. In reverse, black people are always made to feel responsible. We feel burdened. I mean, let's let's be. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask everybody just raise your hand if you if you know what I'm talking about. If you ever felt this way, you 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 hear a story about something that went down, and you hoping and praying before you see it that it wasn't somebody black. Every one of us has had that feeling. We have it perennially. I don't know any white person that ever feels that way. They're watching something. I hope it wasn't nobody white. They do not (laughs) feel that burden. They don't feel the burden of the killer in Jacksonville, in Buffalo, or any place else. So I hear Mm. your point suggesting that they ought to feel that burden. I don't know that they do or ever will, Dr. Yancey. Yep, a beautiful, beautiful point. And I share your skepticism and perhaps even your pessimism regarding that. And I also agree, I don't know any whites who want to carry that burden. I think part of the reason why they um, have a tendency not to identify, uh, let's say, something that where a white person carries out some egregious act, uh, where they say, well, I hope it wasn't a white person, is because white people have the privilege of seeing themselves as individuated, mm. as seeing themselves as atoms, as, as real, genuine, neoliberal subjects. I remember there was a talk that a, a, a scholar who does critical whiteness studies was giving, uh, in the presence of a white audience, and there was someone in the audience who said, uh, a young woman who said, stop referring to me as white, refer to me as Jane, mm. because that's my name. Mm. So, I mean, think about the the audaciousness of that. Think about <laughs> the way in which she was able to say, no, individualize my whiteness, so that I can, you know, you don't, don't call me the white. Well, you see, that's a problematic mode of being. Whiteness allows white people to see themselves as persons, as humans, right? And the thing with regard to black people, the reality is, the reason why we say, I hope it wasn't, is precisely because we as a group have experienced racialized denigration. So racism, anti-black racism, is systemic, it's structural, uh, and it affects an entire group. So it's not sort of an individual uh, injustice. And I think that's partly the reason why we say, I hope it wasn't a black person. Mm-hmm. One, we've come to expect that it's a black person because it's negative. Right? Mm-hmm. We, there's a way in which we want to say, not this time, but it's coming. Right? Uh, and I think that what we need to do is really to get white people to rethink the ethics of whiteness, or to put it more accurately, to think about the immorality of whiteness as a system, so that then they can deconstruct 
their understanding of themselves as individuals, mm. and therefore begin to take responsibility for these acts uh, that are committed, not just by a lone wolf, right, mm-hmm. but by the systems and the ideology and the practices, mundane, spectacular, state-sanctioned, by whiteness itself. And in doing so, then perhaps we can collapse this notion, this myth of the white individual, and get them to think about themselves collectively. You already hear his brilliance. Uh, Dr. George Yancey holds an endowed chair in the philosophy department at Emory University. He's the author, editor, or co-editor of over 20 books. His latest is called Until Our Lungs Give Out, Conversations on Race, Justice, and the Future. You're listening to him right now on Tavis Smiley. Um, when you when you reach out to a, 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 a pool of uh, scholars, intellectual heavyweights, uh, as vast as the group that you spoke to, uh, black and white, Noam Chomsky, Judith Butler, Cornell West, Robin D.G. Kelly, Peter McClain, and others. When you reach out to a group like that uh, for a book about race, justice, and the future, before I get into three particular uh, parts of the text that I want to uh, un- uh, give you a chance to unpack, before I get to that, when you reach out to a group like that, what are you expecting? Oh, I'm expecting the very best. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm expecting that these scholars, given their work, uh, given the critical analyses that they give, the exegesis of texts, their understanding of the history of critical thought, I'm expecting that they will, in fact, engage these questions and are prepared to remove the masks of egocentrism and the mask of fear, mm-hmm. right? That they themselves have taken these issues very seriously, and not just as academic subjects, mm-hmm. right? Because that's a given. But uh, existentially, I keep stressing that, the way in which, because philosophy has been professionalized, right? It's a part of academia. It's, 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 it's impossible to rid it of that. And yet, the, the other side of philosophy is that lived experience of being able to engage in critical thought where one is able to lay bare one's soul, mm-hmm. right? And in doing so, one becomes vulnerable and, re- and vulnerable to the other. So the, the dialogue then that happens is a mutual shared vulnerability, and it's that vulnerability, it's out of that vulnerability I think we get greater forms of truth, and also the desire to touch truth and to linger, as it were, in a kind of blues modality. Mm. Uh, yeah. Speaking of our friend Cornell West, he uh, you, ra- you raised him earlier. Uh, he is yeah. fond of saying, as you know, uh, he, ha- he and I had many dialogues about it, uh, he, he poses this question, and not at all rhetorically, what can a blues nation learn from a blues people? What can a nation ah. with the blues learn from a blues people? So I hear your point about a blues modality. Looking at my clock mm-hmm. here, it'd be unfair to ask you the question that I want to ask you with uh, two minutes to go. We'll continue okay. when we come forward. But let me just tell you where I want to go and ask you a, a quick question that you can answer. Uh, when okay. we come forward, I want to go straight away into the book, and there are three parts I want to give you a chance to unpack. One is this notion that you've already referenced uh, in this conversation uh, heretofore, this notion of global anti-blackness, not just mm-hmm. anti-blackness in this country, which we know well, mm-hmm. but global anti-blackness, number one. I want to talk about whiteness as innocence and how, mm-hmm. as you argue in the text, it must die. That notion must die. Then we're going to talk about matters of faith and religion. Um, so a lot to get to when we come forward. Let me just ask you right quick, though, in the uh, 90 seconds I have right now, speaking of Noam Chomsky and others, um, uh, for those white folk who do get it, uh, and I, I hope I hope and pray that one ain't got to be a brilliant philosopher <laughs> to, 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 to get the humanity and dignity of black people uh, to celebrate and to revel in it. But for those white folk who do get it, why do they get it when others don't and can't? Uh, 
Uh, I don't. Here's the thing. I'm not even sure if white folks get it. Mm. So, me- meaning, meaning, even the most, I'm going to put it this way, even the most brilliant white folk that I've spoken to, uh, if, we, if we allow for that distinction, um, the weight of whiteness is often an issue that they sidestep. Mm. In fact, even the most brilliant ones will talk about white supremacy, the alt-right, uh, proto-fascism, while at the same time missing the very ways in which they themselves grew. Mm. So it's, we know what white supremacy is, but we don't understand what the normative status of whiteness is as itself a manifestation of supremacy. Mm. And I think that's what they often get. That is, the, that is the burden that I'm looking for white people to take on. I suspect that when that happens, white people will be in a profound sense of crisis. <laughs> and that's what it means. To, that's what it means to, to live in, a, to learn from a blue-soaked people. Oh, uh, you're right? killing me, Doctor Yancey. You're killing me. Yeah. You're, kill, you're killing me. Uh, I'm glad I got a half hour to go. I need these few minutes here to recover, right quick, from just that last sentence, just that last frame. I need to recover from. His name is Doctor George Yancey. His text is called "Until Our Lungs Give Out: Conversations on Race, Justice, and the Future." How honored are we to be listening to him right now on Tavis Smiley? You're listening to Tavis Smiley, Tavis Smiley, ranked number 45 on the heavy 100 list of the 100 most important radio talk show hosts in America. Sounds, Sounds different. different, huh? This is Tavis Smiley. We continue our conversation now with Dr. George Yancey, in case, <clears throat> excuse me, in case you've just tuned in. His new book, <clears throat> excuse me there, is called Until Our Lungs Give Out, Conversations on Race, Justice, and the Future. He talked to a... Uh, a group full of heavyweights, uh, intellectual giants um, for this text, Noam Chomsky, Judith Butler, Cornel West, Robin D.G. Kelly, Peter McLean, and others, um, trying to get a sense of their views on uh, on, on race and, and, and justice and the future and whether or not we're truly committed in this country, what in fact it would take, what kind of commitment it would take to dismantle um, the structures of inequality or whether or not we're just paying lip service to this notion of um, equality and equity and and justice and the like, and I'm pleased to have uh, Dr. George Yancey as our guest in this hour. Uh, as I mentioned, I want to come straight away to three parts of the book that I want to give you a chance to to sound off on. Um, mm-hmm. Let me start with the the one you've already raised uh, in in our dialogue, and that's this this notion of global anti-blackness. I think because um, and this is this is nothing. I'm 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 happy. I'm not happy about this. But as you well know, most black folk do not travel outside this country. It's not just black folk. Mm-hmm. Most Americans, overwhelmingly, most Americans don't have passports. So most of us never move beyond the borders of our of our country. And I think that's an indictment on America writ large, not just on black people. Um, I make it my business, as do you and others, um, to travel outside the country as often as we can. Because as I said on this program yesterday, I guess um, when, when you're on the when you're on the float, you you can't really see the parade so one you can't really see when you when you're on it uh and and for me i can't really critique this country in the way that i want to critique it or frankly appreciate it um if i don't get outside of it every now and then and look back on it and so for a lot of people who are inside uh, these borders never get outside of it all they know is the anti-blackness that exists inside this country they're not really tapped in to the global anti-blackness that you raise in the text so talk to me about that if you will Absolutely. So, you know, look, if we think about uh, anti-blackness as signifying what it means not to be at home, then there's a way in which Du Bois was right, that there is this constant double consciousness that we feel, this tension. And to be at home, one should not feel that form of painful 
agonizing double consciousness. And so my sense is that, you know, after I spoke to those scholars, international scholars, you know, from the UK, New Zealand, uh, etc., the the thing that I discovered, I had known, but rediscovered, I should say, and re-emphasized in, in, in the text, is that this place called home may not necessarily be just, you know, not in the United States, right? Mm-hmm. This homelessness as a form of anti-blackness is global. And what I understood um, after this is that, in, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a shame, it's, it's, it's something to agonize about, is that the global, you know, black body, as I said earlier, and this is what emerges from the text in those particular conversations that I had, is a, is a black monster. I mean, mm-hmm. in Australia, for an example, the, the state uh, uh, killing of black aboriginals who are unarmed, so you get the same thing here in the U.S. In New Zealand, you've got anti-black racism uh, in the form of uh, anti-black hair discrimination, right? Mm-hmm. Where black New Zealanders are made to feel that their hair is somehow... Uh, problematic, right? It's it's ugly. It's something to deal with. It's a problem. In the UK, black women dealing with forms of uh, anti-black discrimination uh, in academia and uh, the workplace. And all of that confirmed for me, I think, that not only is there anti-black racism, but there's also global, uh, the global white imaginary. And what we find, for an example, is that in Finland, Afro-Fins are fighting uh, on the, around this issue of black hair. They they had to create what was called a a good hair day, mm. which is a celebration that women of color have come together to create and cultivate and re-educate black people about our about our hair because of the white gaze has distorted that. Uh, in New Zealand, uh, you know, there was also this. This young girl was like 12 years old. She was called the N-word. My, my question is, how did the N-word get to, to New, New Zealand? Zealand? Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. And, she's, and she was caricatured, again, about her hair. Uh, or in, uh, in Sweden, where they have a little cartoon called um, a Little Pink in the Motley Crew, and the black figure that's represented in that cartoon is a pickaninny figure. So black Swedes had to come against that, mm. right? So this way in which the black body... Uh, exudes a kind of monstrosity. Uh, it is the inferior body, the ersatz body, the hyper-criminal, the hyper-sexualized, which is not just amazingly located in the States. So then we have to think then globally. We have to think about the ways in which anti-black racism metastasized, let's say beginning with the emergence of modernity, and expansion of Europe, along with that, the expansion of these anti-black ideas and the ways in which whites have internalized them and mm. continue to propagate them and sustain them. Mm. That's global anti-blackness. The second theme I want to get to that you raise in this book with these other scholars um, is um, whiteness as innocence. Uh, and you argue mm. in the book that whiteness as innocence must die. Uh, unpack yeah. that for me. Yeah, and I'm I'm so happy that I mean I'm delighted that each of the um, the contributors to that section, the, the discussants, were, were were okay with that with that mm-hmm. heading. And yes, I I think that it's powerful. Uh, and let me just give an example. Ta- I mean, take the recent killings in, in in Jacksonville, and the perpetuation of a lone wolf ideology. Right, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you think about uh, DeSantis in uh, his reference to uh, this white murderer as a scumbag. Uh, and that we uh, will not, as he put it, tolerate people who who are being targeted um, based on race. 
right? Yet, despite that rhetoric, despite that discourse, uh, he has targeted people uh, based on race through, <laughs> you know, through the elimination of APA courses, sure. African-American APA courses, or signing bills to limit discussions on race, right? So what we recognize, I think, here is a kind of recognition that, that there are forms of of protestation, there's forms of rhetoric that sound as if they are against anti-blackness. And then there are these mundane policies, I'm going to call them mundane because they don't seem like they're spectacular. Mm-hmm. They, they have a kind of um, a subtlety to them, but that they engage in a kind of obfuscatory uh, uh, gesture. So what I'm suggesting then is that we, in this section of the book, we have to get white people to undergo uh, kenosis. We have to get them to undergo a form of emptying. And when we understand that, when we really take Baldwin seriously and recognize that it, in fact, is the innocence that commits the crime, mm. we have to understand that on the hands of white people who deem themselves innocents, innocent is the blood of black people. Right? That's the point I'm, I've been arguing forever now, ad, na- ad nauseum. Mm. And the reason that it's so radical, because it shifts the conversation from white supremacy, from these, uh, wh- what can be then uh, segregated out, for example, when, De- when DeSante says he's a scumbag. No, he's not a scumbag, right? There's something that's happening. He's not a monster. Mm. If we're going to use the language of monstrosity, and we have to talk about white supremacy, we have to talk about whiteness, that category as an instantiation of monstrosity. It is the subtleness of that that's the problem. It's when I'm followed or you're followed in a, in a, in a store. I mean, that's the monstrosity. It's when we're surveilled, we're under surveillance, police surveillance. That's monstrosity. It's when you're pulled over because your driving is black, or when your shopping is black, or when you're eating as black. In fact, when you are being, when you are breathing <laughs> as black, yeah. that's white mon- monstrosity. Um, and it's those, you know, those microaggressions. It's, oh, uh, you're so articulate. Uh, mm-hmm. It's, uh, oh, you, you're really a philosopher, right? These are the acts <laughs> that we don't see as forms of white supremacy. I'm saying that all of those acts are f- ways in which whiteness yeah. functions as a site of supremacy. And the argument is that whiteness as innocence must die. That argument is made in this text, Until Our Lungs Give Out, Conversations on Race, Justice, and the Future. I love his invocation of James Baldwin. Baldwin was a bad man. Uh, I often am asked, who would you like to have interviewed that you never got a chance to interview? Of course, Dr. King's on that list. You know how I feel about King, the greatest American this country's produced. That's my assessment. But at the top of that list is James Baldwin. I wouldn't have loved uh, Nikki Giovanni, my dear friend, uh, you've never seen it, you should Google it. And Nikki Giovanni and James Baldwin had an amazing conversation years ago, now 50-plus years ago, that still holds up to this day. Um, if you have some time, Google Nikki Giovanni, James Baldwin, and just watch that conversation between the two of these brilliant scholars. Uh, but I love um, Yancey's, uh, Dr. Yancey's reference to Baldwin that it's the innocence that commits the crime. The innocence commits the crime. More with George Yancey when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. Seeking the truth, speaking the truth. This is the Tavis Smiley Show. Ready to re-examine your assumptions and expand your inventory of ideas? More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. More of Dr. George Yancey coming your way right now. His book is on uh, Until Our Lungs Give Out. 
Conversations on Race, Justice, and the Future Brilliant Philosopher out of Emory University. Uh, delighted to have him on in this hour. Um, we talked about Oboe, we talked about global anti-blackness, that is. Whiteness as innocence uh, must die. We discussed that. Now I want to talk about matters of faith and religion. We could do this for hours. We ain't got hours, we got minutes. But talk to me about matters of faith and religion, Dr. Yancey. Yeah, absolutely. I think what was powerful about this section, uh, and I, I'm thinking about it in terms of Lillian Smith, who wrote that brilliant text, Killers of the Dream, uh, where she talks about growing up as a young white girl in the South. And she says, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, she says, by the time I, I learned that God is love, and that Jesus is love, and that I should, you know, basically respect my brothers and sisters, I also learned that I was better than a Negro. Right. Uh, so there's this way in which she was learning about the sanctity of Christianity and what it meant to love Jesus while simultaneously holding the view that she is better than a Negro. And I think that speaks to that section of matters of faith and religion in the text, where really the the interlocutors there were really trying to focus on um, talking about uh, white Christian nationalism and to talk about the idolatry of that, what it means. And if you want, a, if you want a, a clear example of that idolatry, think about uh, January 6th, right? Mm-hmm. Where you had a juxtaposition of uh, images of the white Jesus, you know, the blue-eyed one with the really beautiful hair. Uh, you had, um, you know, images of, of Donald Trump. You know, I, I, I support, you know, Donald Trump is my president, and, like, Jesus is my Lord. Um, so that section is really to draw out and bring attention to the fundamental contradiction in the kind of Christianity that someone like Frederick Douglass would have critiqued, where he says, you know, the slaver's Jesus is not my Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. This is a non-liberatory Jesus, right, and a non-liberatory reading of Christology. And I think what in that section what we do is really bring attention to that, and we pose the sort of question explicitly and implicitly, what do we make of a Christianity that is fueled by white supremacy? And while it's not new, it, is, it has this kind of, of palpability at the moment that is just so incredibly surprising, mm-hmm. or perhaps not surprising, just evident, yeah. right? Yeah. And so that's what we're doing. We want to we get white Christians to rethink the idolatry, the, uh, the sheer uh, ideologically driven um, white supremacist uh, framework that they're using mm. to worship God, which means then, you know, as, as the, the early philosopher George Kelsey said, who also, I believe, taught King, you know, that white Christianity is, a por- is, is basically a form of uh, polytheism. <laughs> where where there's you know the postulation of another god here and who's that god that god is white yeah that's a that's that's a damning indictment uh-huh. but I, I take your point or I take his point when we come forward in our remaining moments with Dr. Yancey um I guess the, the I guess the exit question is whether or not we believe uh, not just in our lifetimes in anybody's lifetime uh, this country speci- specifically will ever get serious about dismantling the structures of inequality or is all this just lip service to justice? Uh, George Yancey on Tavis Month. Hope, agency, dignity. This is Tavis Smiley. Can you dig it? Come on! Who do you trust to get at the truth? Tavis Smiley. 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 That's who. The conversation continues right now. 
well known for his influential essays and interviews at the New York Times philosophy column The Stone and at the prominent political website Truthout. George Yancey holds an endowed chair in the philosophy department at Emory University, author of a uh, 20 books. Uh, his most recent is uh, called Until Our Lungs Give Out, Conversations on Race, Justice, and the Future. In the three minutes I have left, I want to do two things right quick, Dr. Yancey. Number one, um, your 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 view on whether or not this country will ever get serious about dismantling the structures of inequality or whether or not this is all just uh, um, gaming, lip service to the notion of true justice. Mm, I think that um, I'm going to have to say it's a lip service, but it's a conditional lip service. Mm. Until this country until white people in this country die to whiteness. And I just want to make it clear for those who are listening, I'm not saying that white people have to die. (laughs) But what white people look like after the death of whiteness, we don't know that, right? Mm -hmm. So we need a new kind of humanity from white people, because at the moment, whiteness is the very opposite of what humanity ought to look like. I guess there's a tension in my thinking. Du Bois, when he left the U.S., that basically his message was, uh, you know, I, I set sail, uh, I leave no date for return, but he says, but know that the American Negro cannot win. Mm. The American Negro cannot win. And then I think about MLK when he talks about the arc of the moral universe yeah. uh, is long, but it bends, right? Mm. And as I would say, I don't know if the, uh, the universe is moral to begin with. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> King is, is, of course, predicating that on, Christ- on Christianity yeah. and the hope of the hope of, of, of an eschatological end, right, yes, of where yes, God yes. will meet us. So I'm torn, but without that condition, as I st- said, without, the, without, meeting, that, without uh, meeting that condition, um, I think that e- even if the arc of the universe bends, um, uh, it, it, will, it, it will never end. Yeah. In other words, we, we will never come to that end until that happens. Mm-hmm. I think my view is more is similar to Derek Bell's here, kind of race realism, mm-hmm. where uh, the, the racist logics will be uh, permanent because any step forward is a step backward. And just think about the 13th Amendment, where there was the, ab- ab- the abolition of you know, involuntary servitude, and yet the reinstitution yeah. of black codes, right? And it seems to me that that's precisely what's happening, right? The moment we have, quote-unquote, some kind of progress or some kind of movement forward, the logic of whiteness suggests that it will find a way to continue to, lead, to, to live yeah. and to continue to then institute something else that goes under the name of anti-blackness. I, um, right? I, there, 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 there are a handful of things I would query uh, and push Dr. King about, even though he's my hero, were he here. And one of them mm. is that very quote. I agree. First of all, I'm not sure the universe is moral, number one. And secondly, I'm not sure it bends. It may have to be bent. It does not bend <laughs> on its own. So I, I, would, I would interrogate Dr. King on that one Absolutely. quote were he here. Um, in your book, and I'm out of time, in your book you start out in the introduction talking about the value of having conversations, that we have to have conversations. We didn't have a conversation about that point of having conversations, but I thank you for this conversation because I agree that we have to begin all of this having conversations, and I thank you for this conversation today yeah. on Tavis Smiley. We'll do it again. My friend, Dr. Yancey, thank you for your time, sir. All the best on the book. And I thank you as well, and happy birthday again. Thank you, sir. The book is called Until Our Lungs Give Out, Conversations on Race, Justice, and the Future. And until my lungs give out, we'll be here for another hour of this program. You're listening to Tavis Smiley.